this morning, we are starting the book of Genesis. <laughs> Finally. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. First verse. Um, and as we have been doing, we're going to do a Q&R at the end. So if you have any questions at all along the way, feel free to use that text number to text your questions in, and we'll try to interact with them a little bit at the end. Um, but first, I want to play a little game. You guys like games? Okay, I am going to read the first line of a book, and you are going to just shout out the name of the book. Okay, you ready? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice. Yeah, I knew somebody, I knew that one. Okay. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. What'd you say? <laughs> That's Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. How about this one? It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Do you know that one? It's 1984 by George Orwell. Okay, somebody should get this one. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Peter Pan. There you go. <laughs> one more. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. What? Narnia. Yeah, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Very good. So here's the thing about good authors and good books. The first line of a book sets up important things that are going to happen in the rest of the story. And the book of Genesis is no exception. This is, we're going to talk about it in a few minutes, a masterpiece of ancient literature. And Moses knew what he was doing when he wrote it. The very first line of the book is going to say a lot of things about what we're going to expect in the rest of the book. This first section was going to take us a few weeks to get through from chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is kind of a prologue to the book. If you read through the book of Genesis, you're going to see uh, frequently the line, these are the generations, or this is the family of, dot, dot, dot. Um, the, the Hebrew word is toledot. And it happens in the book 10 times. So Moses is taking this book and he's dividing it into 10 sections. The first one is the generations of the heavens and the earth, which is in chapter two. And then the generations of Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem specifically, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And this same phrase starts each one of these sections. But before we get into those sections, we have a prologue. And that's what the first chapter into the first three verses of the second chapter are. Genesis chapter 1, a lot of people say that it's poetry. It's not really poetry. It's just beautifully, masterfully crafted narrative storytelling. We lose a lot of that because we don't read and speak Hebrew, but in the Hebrew language, there's a lot of um, mathematical symmetry and interesting things happening. For instance, in the first verse, there's seven words. In the second verse, there's 14 words. 
In chapter two, verses one through three, there's 35 words. So there's all these multiples of seven. Uh, In this section, God is mentioned 35 times. The earth is mentioned 21 times. The heavens are mentioned 21 times. God saw that it was good seven times. There's over and over and over again, there's these touches that you can see. Somebody planned this out. And so we read verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even this, the simple statement, hotly debated, what does this mean? (laughs) There's a couple ways to look at it. One way is to say that this is the first thing that God did. The first thing that God created was the heavens and the earth. And then the next thing that God did happens in verses two and three. Another way to look at it is that this is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, colon, and this is how it happened. I lean more towards that second view, that this is kind of the kind of title statement of the book, and then Moses is going to go into how it breaks down in the next verses. If some of you have have studied this for a while, you maybe are familiar with something called the gap theory. There's a school of thought that said, no, In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then something happens, and then there's a long period of time before verse two. That's called the gap theory. Something that makes the earth formless and void that we're going to read about in verse two. There's not really anything in the text that leads to that. I mean, we can can assume things about the space in between verses, but there's nothing really there explicit that would lead us to believe that that's the case. And so if we are thinking that there is a gap in between those verses, we're, that might be true, but we're just adding that in. That's not explicit in, in the text. And so I think that verse one is an introductory statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's talk about how he did it. But we're not going to talk about how he did it today. We're going to just stick in verse one. Verse one says a few important things that are going to be really necessary to get down before we move on. And the first thing that we find that it says is that God did this in the beginning. There's a beginning. All of this, this planet, this building, us, this all got started somewhere. And we're all pretty comfortable with the idea of beginnings. We live in a world where there's causes and effects. My children try to argue with me about this. Hey, how did this happen? No idea. Well, somebody did this. No, I don't know. It just showed up that way. It's just a mess on the floor instantaneously out of nothing. Are you sure you didn't do this? No, I didn't do it. Nobody did it. It just didn't happen. But we know there's something wrong with that. If if you find an effect, there is a cause. But the thing is, modern science and philosophy, they turn out to be a lot like my children. And I've I've spent a lot of time in the last couple weeks talking about how Genesis isn't super interested in a lot of our modern scientific questions. It's interested in questions that its audience is dealing with. But Genesis is talking about big questions of life that we're still wrestling with today. So we're not going to find a lot of information about carbon dating and theories about gravity, but we are going to find answers to big questions about how the world works. 
And today, and for much of modern history, science has hoped that the earth was eternal. Because, and the universe was eternal. If, if, if we can have a, a cosmos that's always existed, then we don't have to deal with the idea that it all started with something, started somewhere. But there's problems with that. The first problem that, that, that we can find is that there is a philosophical problem. There's a, a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig who um, talks a lot about what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. This is a um, logical argument that was developed by a Muslim scholar in the Middle Ages. And it says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist and therefore the universe has a cause. And so if we can show that the universe began to exist, then something must have caused it. Prior to the 1920s, science just did not believe this. They just, they believe in something called the steady state universe, that the universe has always been. But then we developed something called the Big Bang Theory. Albert Einstein, smart guy, he developed the theory of relativity. And according to the theory of relativity, it seemed to be that the universe had to start somewhere. It wasn't possible to be eternal. A guy named George Lemaitre, who was a priest, a Catholic priest and scientist, he used Einstein's work to formulate what we call the Big Bang Theory, that the universe is expanding outward from a center point. In 1921, Edwin Hubble, the scientist that they named the telescope after, he showed that light from distant stars shifted in its color spectrum to the red shift, um, which showed that they were moving, it's kind of a Doppler effect, they were moving out from each other at incredible speeds. So he showed evidence that the universe is expanding. And subsequently, we found evidence of various kinds over and over and over again that the universe is getting larger. And if a universe is expanding, if we run it backwards in time, it eventually comes to a point of beginning. In 2003, because scientists still like to argue, um, three scientists named Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin developed a mathematical theory that proved, if you know anything about math, proofs are different than theories, um, but they, they presented a proof that the universe is, has a beginning. And Vilenkin says, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men and a proof is what, what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape and they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And so we have a philosophical argument, we have scientific evidence, and we have a mathematical proof all outside of scripture that shows that the universe had a beginning. And again, modern science doesn't like this because um, most scientists work under the assumption that you just can't talk about God. It's called methodological naturalism. Whatever is happening in the world, we have to figure out why it's happening all by itself without saying God did it. And most of the time that makes sense. Again, just like with my kids, if, if somebody spills their milk and they go, God did it. Well, no, that's, that's not helpful. 
So scientists work under this assumption that there is a natural cause to everything, but when they get to the beginning of the universe, they can't find one. And ancient people, just like us modern people, have, can have that same kind of understanding, that there was a beginning. All of this stuff that we see around us started somewhere. There is a most basic fundamental reality in the universe. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about other creation stories from Egypt and Babylon, and, and most of them start with the waters. We're going to talk about the waters next week in verse two, but the waters are there forever and the gods are sometimes even birthed out of the waters. But Genesis has a different take. Genesis, speaking against those creation stories, says, no, no, the waters aren't eternal. God is eternal. God is the ultimate creator. And so today, this morning, there is a direct line of causes and effects that go all the way back from you to this fundamental aspect of reality. And because of that, it lays claim on everything you believe, everything you say, and everything you do. That's why the, where the universe came from is such an important question, because it plays a role in what we understand about our lives. A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that God, we, we here, we worship Jesus Christ as God, but God could just be the waters if you're a Babylonian. God could be just the, very, the unknown, the multiverse if you're into that sort of thing. There's all kinds of things that could represent that fundamental reality, but the thing that you put in that place shapes who you are. And in the Hebrew scriptures, we read that God was there at the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God created. Let's look at the next couple words. God created. Again, I mentioned this, but God is the one there. It's not the ancient waters. It's not the seas of chaos. It's God. And one of the very interesting things about Genesis' understanding of this story is if you, if you read the Babylonian stories, if you read the Canaanite stories, if you read the Egyptian stories, there's always fighting. There's a God that shows up out of the waters and then there's a rival God and you got, there's a big war and the one God wins and ascends to the throne and claims creation and usually takes the body of the dead God and makes the earth out of it or something. There's all this struggle and violence but Israel's creation story is very different. Bill Arnold writes, Israel's God has no rivals. There can be no struggle with forces opposed to his actions or corresponding to his power. There could be no victory enthronement motif because God's victory was never in doubt. Rather, God has never not been enthroned. There is never a time in history or prehistory or before time began when God had to fight for the right to rule the universe. God is the only one there at the beginning. The word that, that we translate God in, in Genesis 1 is the word Elohim. Um, there's a couple of words that, that the Hebrew Bible uses for God, and one of them that you also may know is Yahweh. A couple of our songs, we sing the, the name Yahweh. 
Elohim is a very generic term for God. A lot of, if you were a Babylonian, if you were a Canaanite, you might call your God Elohim. It's like the word God. Like in our culture, we live in a pluralistic culture where lots of different religious expressions exist. And if you say, I believe in God, well, we need to ask some more questions. Who is this God that you believe in? Muslims believe in God, Jews believe in God, a variety of other faiths believe in God. Elohim is a word like that. But it's an important word like that because Moses is using it for a specific reason. In chapter two, he's gonna switch to the word Yahweh, which is God's covenantal name for the people of Israel. When when Moses goes to the burning bush and, and God says, I want you to go to Egypt and free my people. Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And God says, Yahweh, that's my name. That's how I want you to know me. It's this personal relationship, this covenant relationship. But in Genesis 1, God's name is Elohim because Moses is making a, p- a point. He's not saying, this is, this is our story. This is the Hebrew story. This is the tribal deity that, that made our version of reality. No, this is the story. This is the only story. The ultimate story of how the universe began is what we're talking about. In chapter two, we're going to talk about Yahweh and how he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's a very personal, close, intimate relationship. But God goes by the name Elohim in chapter one. And some of us have a really good grasp of this Elohim kind of God. We understand that there is a God out there and he is responsible for everything in the world. He is um, sovereign. He controls things. But he's distant. We can't really imagine him coming and walking and talking and and being close. Others of us have a really good grasp of God as he presents himself as Yahweh, as close, as intimate, as talking with his people. But we never really think about how he's awe-inspiring and powerful and oversees the functioning of the entire universe. But both of these aspects of who God is are things that we find in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. The word created in in this verse is bara. It's an interesting word because it's only ever used about God. There's a lot of ways to say somebody made something, created something, built something in the Hebrew language. And this particular word is only ever used of God. And it's usually used functionally, not materially. And here's an illustration for that. If, if I say I'm building a house, you might think if I'm handy, I'm actually out there with a hammer and a nail gun building a house. You, you also might think I'm hiring somebody to build a house. But if I say I'm making a home, is that the same thing? For most of us, it's not. If I'm making a home, I'm, I'm probably, maybe I'm decorating, maybe I'm buying furniture, maybe I'm arranging a space, maybe I'm even cooking a meal. Because even though building a house and making a home are using similar words, they're doing different things. And when God bara, when he creates, he's usually doing something functional like making a home rather than material like building a house. John Walton says, the author's concerns were much 
like others in the ancient Near East, where the greatest exercise of the power of the gods was not demonstrated in the manufacture of matter, but in the fixing of destinies. We talked about this a little bit last week, but when we get to verse two, the earth already exists and it's formless and empty and we don't really get any explanation for that. What's happening there? Moses isn't really concerned about it. And as we walk through the seven days of creation, there are going to be some things that God makes, but many things God's just kind of rearranging. It's like he's setting up a house. There's a doctrine called ex nihilo creation, which means out of nothing. And it's like most theological doctrines, it's pulled out of the text and kind of formulated. Um, And scripture teaches that. Scripture teaches that God is the first being. He's the only being and everything else comes from him. Colossians 1 says, for everything was created by him and in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Paul's talking about Jesus there. And then in Hebrews 11 We read, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So scripture teaches that God creates everything from nothing. But most of what God is doing when he uh, bara, creates, is he's assigning roles. He's giving functions. He's putting things in their proper place. He's organizing the cosmos. And it's something that only he can do. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is shorthand in the Bible for everything that exists outside of God. Tim Mackey says, it's God's space and our space. Revelation 4.11 says, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Ultimately, everything in the universe traces itself back to God. You, your cat, your car, your home, your family, the guitar or the the paintbrush or the iPad that you use to create things using God as your example. Fruit trees, candlesticks, kombucha, electricity, ocean breaches, pork rinds. God makes a claim on all of these things. And, And God creates the heavens of the earth and the earth in great unity with one another. As we keep reading, we'll find that God and humanity, we live together in the garden. God says it is good until we get to chapter three, where sin comes and breaks this unity. The whole rest of the Bible is focused on how God is going to get heaven and earth back together again. Remember, I said a good book's first line will tell you something important about the rest of the book. As you read through the rest of the story of the Bible, it's always concerned about the brokenness between God's place and our place and how to get it back together. And this is where we find ourselves today. We're in the midst 
of the heavens and the earth. And this is where we live on the earth, separated from God's space by sin and death. And if we keep reading through the story of the Bible, we find that God is, is creating these ways for men and women to connect to him. He's, he has Moses build the tabernacle, which is this sacred space to where he can meet with his people. And later on, they turn it into a permanent place, the temple. But even there, only certain people can go into the temple at certain times of year. And it's, there's all of these um, special rituals that you have to do to make yourself appropriate for God's space. But then we get to the Gospel of John. And John writes something very similar to what we just read in Genesis. He says, in the beginning, same words, but he changes it. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Greek culture, the word, the word is logos. It's, it can mean just word, like a word in a sentence, but it can also mean this, this idea of this fine, um, foundational wisdom. The Greeks believed that there was this, this kind of wisdom that existed before time began that was foundational and at the heart of the universe. If you ever remember, you remember the book, The Secret. It's a dumb book, don't read it. But it came out, like, this is the secret to life and the universe, and this will show you how to be happy and successful. Or maybe you've seen this one weird trick to help you lose belly fat or whatever. Like, like there's this thing and you don't know about it, but, but I know about it. And that's what this idea of the logos was. The Greek philosophers would talk about this, this foundational wisdom. And John says, in the beginning was the logos. You are right about that. And it was with God. And it was God. God is the Logos. But then in verse 14, John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You could also translate that tabernacled among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John sets up this idea of this ultimate reality in the Logos and then he says, it becomes human. This, this heavenly reality that lives out there apart from our sin and our wickedness actually comes in to the earth space. He leaves the heaven space and he comes to the earth space and he lives with his people. And it's in Jesus that the work of bringing heaven and earth back together takes place. Jesus in his person and in his work remakes the universe that God created good and humanity broke when we sinned. And we can continue reading in God's word all the way to the book of Revelation where we see finally heavens, a new heaven and a new earth and they are together. And Jesus is at the center of that. And God's people have constant access to him forever and ever. So, what do we have for questions?
Come on, phone. There we go. Let's see. Since it isn't after, since it isn't until after verse one that there is a separation between earth and heaven, is it accurate to think that the in the beginning heaven and earth were together? Um. That depends, I think, on, on how you take verse one. If, if you see verse one as God's first creative act and then something happens in verse two, then, then I think that would be true. But if you see verse one as just a summary statement of what happens next, then I don't think verse one tells us so much about what's um, exactly going on in, in verse one, if that makes sense. Um, I would say, though, that you get the impression that the place where God lives and the place where people live are the same thing all throughout scripture and, 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 and they're referenced that way and until they get separated by sin and the goal of the Bible is to bring them back together. So, I mean, you could use verse one to say that they were in the same place. They definitely are meant to overlap each other in the way that it's talked about in the Bible, but they are still distinct places because they're talked about distinctly. The heavens and the earth are, are talked about as, as separate spaces. Um, let's say, which is the better approach when discussing God to non-believers who worship contemporary science? Appeal to their logical intellect with apologetics or appeal to their heart and use more romantic, spiritual, wondrous language? If the answer is it depends, <laughs> dang it, <laughs> then when to use which? How to bridge the two? Well, it depends. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's just, yeah, it's a question about, every, people are different, right? Like most people are not super rational. I would say probably all people, all of us are not super rational. We think we're rational. We think we make wise, informed decisions, but most often I think we convince ourselves of that. So some people, if they, if they are, are gonna be compelled to look more deeply into scriptural things, if you have some kind of apologetic science argument about um, the beginning of the universe or Christian theism, or, or some philosophical argument about morality or something like that, that could be helpful. That probably doesn't get somebody all the way to faith in Christ. Um, we come to faith in Jesus because we recognize our own personal sin, the, the own depravity of our hearts, the fact that there is something in us that is lacking and that we need to be fixed because we are broken. And that, that takes some engagement with the heart. And I don't know if it's romantic, um, but I think most of us are interested in living in a grand story. It's why we read books. It's why we watch movies. We're a generation of people that um, immerse ourselves in big, epic tales. And I think there's a reason for that. I think C.S. Lewis did some work on this, that the reason we like this kind of epic grandness is because we want to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, and if 
the story of Jesus and how he came to rescue us from sin and death and restore heaven and earth back into the glory that it was created in, if that epic story is something that um, gives the person you're talking about uh, energy and joy and makes them want to hear more, then I would definitely go with that. I find it easier um, to talk about facts and uh, data. It's kind of how I'm built. Um, but I also recognize that not everybody cares about that. You know, you might be somebody that's just like, no, so what? Like, tell me, tell me what it means to me. Tell me, tell me why I should care about this God that you serve. I don't care about when the universe came into being. I don't care about some theorem that some physicists made. It just doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to my life. It doesn't matter to my uh, my family or my job or my leisure or all of these things that are in front of me. What I want to know is, is there a God that loves me? Is there purpose in my life? Does it? Does anything matter past today? Uh, and and I, would, I would just say, you have to get to know people if, if you're going to find that out. Like, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of like walking downtown randomly and telling people about Jesus. I mean, you can do that if you feel, if the Spirit's leading you to do that, like by all means do that. But I, I would rather get to know somebody. There's a... Um, there's a good question. One of, the, one of the books I think we have about evangelism over in the library asks the question, what is good news to the person you're talking to? If, if you're talking to somebody who is far from God, you're going to need to get to know them a little bit to figure out what about their world is broken, or at least what they see in their world is broken. What is, what is the good news of the gospel as it applies to Jim or Susan? And in order to get there, you're going to have to ask questions. You're going to have to love people. You're going to have to get into relationship with people. You're going to have to see people not as projects to be fixed or converted, but people to just be loved. And sometimes you're going to meet people that are super geeked out about science and philosophy, and that would be the time to talk about science and philosophy. <laughs> um, but not everybody is, is there. Last question. How important is it for us to hold a correct slash scriptural view of creation being that many Christians, even Christian teachers, hold views that differ, such as theistic evolution? If it doesn't affect our salvation, how much weight should it hold on our theology? Well, I would, I would say we, we shouldn't strive to hold an incorrect view. Like, if, if, you, if you think the view you have is incorrect, then I would try to fix it. Because um, we want to believe the truth. The problem with this whole section of scripture is that there's a lot of ways to read it, right? And we're gonna, we've been talking about that. We're gonna get into it even more. There, yeah, there are whole groups of faithful Christians who love Jesus that have fully bought into what our current scientific models about how life works say, and they kind of just map that over the top of Genesis. Uh, there are other Christians that completely reject that and, and take a very face value reading of Genesis. 
and kind of come up with an alternative science about it. I've been talking about how I don't really think Genesis 1 specifically is about either of those things. Those are all different parts of that spectrum. I think there are certain points where we have to be very clear about our creation narrative. Like the beginning is one of them. Like if, if you think, well, you know, some of the scientists don't want there to be a beginning, so they posit a multiverse and or a cyclical universe that big bangs and then compresses and big bangs and compresses and it has been for all of eternity. And that's what science says. So I believe what science says. So when God says in the beginning, that's not true. Like, I think it has to be true. I, th I think we have to start with the beginning of everything because I think that's where Genesis starts. When we get to the story of Adam, that's another area where there are some Christians today that have just decided like Adam and Eve probably weren't real. They're just a, they're just a picture of humanity and sin. And I have a really hard time with that. I'm not going to tell somebody they're not a Christian because they fall there, but, but I think a lot of the work that Jesus does and Paul does later on in the Bible depends on Adam and Eve being real. Um, so we'll wrestle with that in, you know, 100 years when we get to chapter two. But, but I think that's an important thing. Now, if you're like stuck on, you know, what Moses means by the different animals divided by their kinds and how we, um, how we define kinds, or, or if you're really interested in, in the water above the heavens and the water below the heavens, I don't think those things are that important. Um, but when I say that, I don't mean that you shouldn't have a view about them. But I don't think you should fight about them. I read a paper this week that was arguing that because the, the heavens are where the stars are and the account says that there's water below the heavens and above the heavens that out at the farthest extremes of our universe, there's this giant sphere of water. I think that's a little weird. I mean, that could be true, um, but that seems strange to me. If, if, that's, if that's how you read this, okay. I'm not going to fight with you about it. Um, I don't think that person for believing that is not a Christian or, or I don't think they would say that if you don't believe that, you are not a Christian. But I do think there are some specific places. We're going to get to um, the image of God. What does the image of God mean? How do we understand that in verse 26? That's an important one. Where it's, it's going to be a jumping off point for everything that we believe about the value of humanity. Um, but as far as the details... I think you should study. I think you should come up with something that you think makes sense of the text. Uh, but I think you should believe it loosely and you shouldn't fight about it. Unless you like fighting about it and both of you want to fight about it and then that, that's, that can be fun. <laughs> but I know there are some Christian ministries that would say that if, if you don't take a certain stance on how to read Genesis, you might as well just throw out the whole rest of the Bible because you don't believe any of it. I just think that's, that's just a fallacy. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Um, but we should be people that study. We should be people that have reasons why we believe things. And, and when we recognize that there are faithful Christians that believe a variety of things about an issue, we should um, be able to love and serve one another and respectfully disagree. Okay? We're going to take communion. And as I was reflecting on this passage in Genesis, 
Communion has some interesting aspects to it. We often talk about how we, uh, we seem to think that the physical is kind of less than and the spiritual is, is more important, that we need to abandon physical things to pursue spiritual things, that the everyday things of our lives are somehow need to be transcended if we're really going to see Christ. There's a song we sing sometimes that says, the things of earth will go strangely dim. And I understand the sentiment there. But Jesus sets up this practice for us where he intentionally says, this is the time that I want you to get close to me. I want you to remember me. I want you to focus on me. And he does it in a very physical, tangible, earthy way. And thinking about the way that God creates, Jesus doesn't just make something out of nothing. He, we, he know, we know he can. He, he feeds the 5,000 by breaking a loaf of bread like multiple times and creating more bread than there actually was there. I mean, that's a miraculous thing that he did, creating something out of nothing. But in the communion meal, he repurposes something that already existed. He takes the Passover meal, the, the, the joyous uh, celebration of freedom from slavery, and he repurposes it. He gives it a new function. And he says, whenever you do this, whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, you remember me. You remember my death on your behalf. You remember the fact that I gave my life for you so that you could be reunited with God. And he creates this thing and he says, this is what I want you to do. And this is how I want you to lean in close. And so we're going to do that. We're going to sing. I would just encourage you to, um, maybe, you're, maybe you're one of those, those people that, that is okay with God being sovereign and creating everything, but you're a little weirded out by God being close. Or maybe you're the opposite of that. Maybe you're totally cool with God being close, but you, you don't think about God's gra- uh, grand vastness very often. Wherever you are, Spend some time considering Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross for you, and who he is as creator of everything that exists and ultimately the one that we will all be held accountable to. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.